So we are going to be in Romans again this morning, and we're going to be uh, looking at chapters 9 through 11. So we're going to cover three chapters, and Romans 9 through 11 is a pretty, again, let's, I, I feel like I say this every week, but it's a pretty detailed and uh, it's a pretty dense couple of chapters that Paul is working through. And uh, so again, we, there's no possible way that we can like go verse by verse through this without it. I mean, you could spend an awful long time on uh, Romans 9 through 11. I mean, we've been doing it for about 2,000 years as the church, and I still think we're grappling with some of the issues in there. And so, uh, so there's a lot in these chapters. But again, I think if you zoom out a little bit and you try to read uh, the, the grand sweeping flow of the argument, uh, I think you can learn some pretty encouraging and some pretty powerful details. Uh, I think you can learn some things about who God is and who his people are, and you learn about the depth of his love and his mercy for all of his people and for all of his creation. Sometimes I think that gets missed. Sometimes you can zero in on one passage or one particular verse, and you can end up with a, a misguided idea of how it is that God's plan of salvation actually works. But one of the things that's important to note about Romans 9 through 11 is it's not asking the question that, that often people want it to be asking. It's not asking the question, how is it that an individual person goes to heaven? Uh, that's not the question that, that Paul is addressing. He's addressing, I think, a much broader question of how it is that God has been faithful in his election of Gentiles to become part of his covenant family rather than uh, what uh, Paul had thought of and others had thought of as, as a promise perhaps for Israel alone. So that's kind of a big answer to uh, what's going on here, but let's, let's zero in a little bit. I just want to read the first two verses of Romans chapter 9 with you, and I want you to look at these verses, and I want you to think about these verses after the lesson last week. Because if you remember the lesson last week, we ended with this glorious picture of the unfailing love of God, right? I mean, you can just read the last three verses of Romans 8. He says, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquer through him that loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a positive and happy and encouraging couple of verses, verses that make you feel like conquerors, not through your own greatness, but through the love of God, which he has poured out for you, which is more powerful than anything you can ever see or think or feel in this world. God loves you. And through the love of God, you are a conqueror. Through the love of God, you can overcome temptation. Uh, temptation. You can overcome persecution. You can overcome any devastating uh, effect that this world throws at you. It's like the love of God is the most powerful source on earth, and it's poured out for us through a God who loves us. So Paul's next words should be, so I'm very, very happy, Right? Like, his next word should be something about, like, and because of this love of God, I'm thrilled, and I know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I know we have a better Adam. We have Jesus, who didn't bring sin and death into the world, but brought reconciliation and life. I know that I'm no longer a slave to sin, and so I have freedom with the God who loved me. I know that I'm not suffering under law or suffering under a, a, a works-based righteousness that I could never achieve on my own because the grace of God has saved me. I know that the Holy Spirit is with me, and God me through this life. Like so many positive things in the last three chapters, chapters five, six, and seven, and eight, so four chapters. Like so much of this has been building us up. And then he says, all right, so here's the truth that I want you to know. Chapter nine of verse one. 
I am telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifying with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a twist. Uh, that's a curveball from what you would be expecting right now. He has just spent the last several chapters detailing this glorious gift of God's grace, how through his love we can overcome anything in heaven and on earth, and how this earth and we, like we, we are longing for God and we have hope of redemption. And yet, through the love of God and in the Holy Spirit, he has unceasing grief and unparalleled sorrow. Why? Like, why? Well, that's chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's going to be getting at the heart of why he's struggling right now. And here's the struggle. The struggle is God's gift of salvation through Jesus is so glorious. And yet, many of the people that I love so much, my own countrymen, his fellow Israelites and his fellow Jews, have not accepted it. They didn't accept Christ as the Messiah. But he knows that this is the plan of God, and he knows that God is going to work through Jesus, and he knows that that God is redeeming the whole world. So why won't they accept it? Not only have they not accepted it, but it appears that Gentiles have accepted it in even greater numbers than, than his fellow countrymen. And it's like, when you think of all of these great promises that God made Israel throughout the Old Testament, that God would be with them, God would never forsake them, that they were his people, that they would have glory and all of these things, you find that those promises are now for a large number of Gentiles, and most of his own family and countrymen have rejected it. And you think, well, what about those promises? I mean, when, when, I, when I think of things in my life that have caused me the most pain and heartache, um, I, I think I have been fortunate and, and blessed in many ways. Um, I, I haven't had as many struggles, I think, in, that a lot of people have had in their lives. And I think that I, I've been fortunate in that way, and I want to be thankful for that. But when I think of what I have experienced that has caused me the most uh, heartache, very often it has been the people who I love and care about, people who I want the absolute best for, people that you minister to, or people in your family, or people that you just know and love and have close relationships with who have turned away from the Lord. And in that has an eternal impact on your relationship. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to have to, to, to grapple with and to have to deal with. And Paul, I think, is experiencing that hard thing. When he considers like the life that he lived, he grew up in Jerusalem, these people that he loved and respected and looked up, looked up to, he, he sees so many of them have not followed the Messiah. And so many Gentiles have followed the Messiah. Imagine you have a family, and there's this inheritance that's been promised to you, and it's been promised to your family, and you're really excited about it, and, and you know, the day has come, and you're going to receive it, and on that day, it's given to another family, and you say, wait a minute, what about, like, what about, what about all the promises that were made to my family? Like, what, what about all of those words and all of those things? Like, how come this is being given to another and not to us? The one who made the promises, is that one unjust? The one who made the promises, has he failed to fulfill his promises? That's the question of Romans 9 through 11. Why is it that God's promises and blessings for Israel are now being given to another? What, what, is that fair? Is that just? Is, that, is, that, uh, is God faithful to Israel or has he abandoned his own people? 
So those are, those are some of the big questions, and that's why Paul has this great sorrow, even after considering the love of God. He's filled with sorrow because he says, sees so many have not accepted it, and many have rejected it. And so what do you, what's the answer to this? Is God unfaithful? Has God forgotten his promises? The answer in Paul's mind is an emphatic and absolute no. God is not unfaithful. God is just and faithful and good and loving. He always has been and he always will be. You can trust in God. There are other explanations as to why this is happening. If you read through Romans 9 and 10 and 11, you're seeing Paul lay out a fairly complex line of reasoning as to how God has been faithful, even though as you look at the world around you, it doesn't look at all like you expected it to. Sometimes God's mercy goes in the most unexpected places. Sometimes God's mercy doesn't follow the path that we think it should. And so I love the passage that was just read for us a moment ago um, in Romans chapter 11, because he really does end with this idea. When he says, Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He, he ends by saying, look, even after these three chapters of me laying out my best understanding of this, I'm still going to go ahead and say that the ways of God are unsearchable and they're really hard to know. And things don't always look like you expect them to. And God often moves in ways that you were not predicting. And so the mercy of God, which mercy of God is, is a key phrase throughout these three chapters. The mercy of God often works in ways you might not expect it to. But it is all rooted in the love that God has for every one of his people. So how does Paul get us there? How does Paul get us from sorrow to actually hope and confidence in the love of God? Well, he does it by, by answering this question about God's faithfulness in a number of ways. So, has God rejected his people? Look at Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 3 through 6, and we'll see kind of where Paul starts laying out these ideas that we've just been talking about. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is a wild verse where Paul says, like, I love them so much, I would rather me be separated from Christ, me be eternally accursed, and them have eternal salvation, them have a relationship with Christ. I love them so much, I would make that trade if I could. He would give up not only his body, but his soul and his life and, and his eternity for these people. That's quite a thing to say, but that's the sorrow that he feels because he loves those people so much. That is a depth of love that I'm still striving for. Uh, I don't know that I'm there yet. Uh, but Paul is able to say something pretty incredible right there. But then he starts talking about th these countrymen according to the flesh in verse 4. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Whose are the fathers? And from whom also is Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen says, when you think about the Israelites, they're the ones who were given the, or promised uh, the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the, the law, uh, the temple service, the promises of God. Like all of these things were given to Israel. And not only that, but Israel is the one who had the fathers and they're the ones through whom the Messiah came. So Israel has been part of God's plan for so long. They've actually brought God into the world through the Messiah. The Israelites have, have been the ones who have had all these promises made to them. They're the ones who were waiting for glory and adoption of sons and all of these things. And yet what's happened 
as you see, so many of those things have now been transferred over to another people. If you look at the church in Rome, it was probably primarily a Gentile congregation. And you have Gentiles who are sitting there outnumbering the Jews, and yet the Jews are the ones who have all these promises, and the Gentiles are the ones reaping the benefits. And so what has happened? Has the word of God to the Jews failed? Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So now he's going to start laying out his case. And I would love to spend more time on each one of these points that he makes, but I'm going to have to just kind of summarize them. If you want to come back tonight, we'll look a little bit more in depth at how Paul gets each one of these points across. But his points are basically this. The first one, you can see it there in verse 6, the second half of the verse. He says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So one of the things that he begins to do is to, to offer a redefinition of the way that people have traditionally thought about Israel. There are Israelites who did not descend from Israel, and there are some who did descend from Israel who are not all Israelites. Uh, and so the way that you might think of Israel needs to be transformed. And this is not a radically new idea. He actually already mentioned it in chapter 2 when he was talking about circumcision. In chapter 2 and verse 28, he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So he, he ends up saying, that actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, this idea of a circumcision of the heart. And he says, look, you might think that being born in a particular genealogy or having gone through circumcision, that's what makes you a Jew. No, if you read carefully, God actually says he desires even more than that, a circumcision of the heart. And that's something that can happen whether you're Jew or Gentile, either way. So, so there are people who have truly become Israelites, truly received circumcision, even though not in the flesh but in the spirit and through the, the promise of God. And so he kind of redefines things in that way. But then he says, you can even prove this by going back, by the way, to Genesis. And this is point number two, and this is a point about God's election. Um, again, this is not election to see who can go to heaven and who won't go to heaven. That's not what the purpose of this. But it is election to see who will become God's people, who will become his covenant people. And he gives a couple of examples of people who were, say, descendants of Abraham. And one of them was chosen and one of them wasn't. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was chosen, Ishmael wasn't. And it was not a choice that was based on their merit. It was not a choice that was based on their work. It was based on the election of God. Now, that is not to say that Ishmael couldn't have ever been pleasing to God, but he wasn't the one chosen through who the promise would come. Uh, and then you have uh, Israel or, or Jacob. Jacob is another one. He had sons. Uh, well, Jacob and Esau, by the way, were, were two sons. And God chose Jacob. He chose uh, Israel to be his son. He did not choose Esau. And again, that was not a choice based on their merit. It was not a choice based on, on what work they had performed. It was actually a choice at, at birth. Uh, even before birth, there's this, this promise that the younger or the older will serve the younger. So like God had made this election. It is not an election about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Esau could have been faithful. Jacob could have been faithful. But one of them was chosen to be God's covenant people. So all of this is a way of saying that, one, we need to rethink how we have defined the promises made to Israel because Israel might be a little bigger than we think. Number two, you can see that God is the one who has made these choices throughout history and that God is free as the sovereign creator of the world to make those kinds of choices. In fact, point number three he makes is that the promises God makes, he 
they are beyond question from us. We are not the ones who are God's judge. We are not the ones who will stand with our arms folded in judgment to see whether or not God has pleased us on the last day. That's not how this thing works. God is the potter and we are the clay. And that's an illustration that he uses. But I do think it's an illustration that gets misunderstood sometimes because, and we'll talk about this tonight, but the language of God being a potter comes from Jeremiah 18 and a couple of other passages where Jeremiah is brought to this potter's house and he's supposed to look through the window and he sees this potter who is working on these different clay pots. And when the, when the clay spoils, the potter ends up changing what he's going to do with it. But if the clay ends up better, then he ends up making it into something even better. And the point that Jeremiah is told is this. Can God not make a promise to bless a nation and to prosper them and to do good things for them? But then that nation turns against God. So then God changes what he said to now mean this nation's going to be punished. And the reverse of that also. If God promises he's going to punish a nation, but then that nation repents and turns to the Lord, can he not bless that nation? God, as the potter, can do that. God can, the prophecies and promises of God are conditional. And God is able to, as the sovereign creator and as the potter, he is able to look at the clay and see whether the clay has repented or rebelled. If the clay has rebelled, then punishment for the clay. If the clay has repented, then, uh, then a place of glory for the clay. But God, as the potter, is the one who makes those types of distinctions and decisions. And so point number one, Israel's probably a little bigger than you think and isn't defined as you traditionally have defined it. Point number two, God is free to make these types of elections to choose who his people are going to be. He has chosen uh, between the sons of Abraham. He's chosen between the sons of Jacob. He's chosen in, our, in, in Paul's day between Jews or Gentiles who have become faithful to the Messiah. Because rather than choosing Abraham or Jacob or, uh, or Isaac, God has chosen Christ. And he has chosen that Christ will be the one who determines whether or not uh, you are found to be in his covenant family, whether you've given your allegiance and faithfulness to Christ. And the fourth point he makes, uh, you can see it in verse 27 of chapter 9, through a, a citation of Isaiah. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. This idea of the remnant. So, and this is an idea throughout the Old Testament. You can see he also has another uh, passage that he quotes from Isaiah in verse 29. But the idea is God often has a large number of people, but it's actually within that large number, a smaller group who tend to be truly faithful to God. And so even with like Babylonian captivity, there was still a faithful remnant, even though everyone else had turned away there was still this faithful group. And if you look at Israel in Paul's day, God had done the same thing. God was still faithful to Israel, even like physical genealogical Israel. Why? Because there still was a remnant of actual Israelites, descendants of Abraham who were saved. And so you shouldn't define Israel simply as those who are descendants of Abraham. Uh, and he shows that. You can't judge God based on his election as to who are going to be his people. He's free to choose those who are in Christ. God is the potter, and we are the clay, and the clay isn't supposed to turn and, and yell at the potter for what's been done with us. Uh, but God actually has saved and, and made his people a, a remnant that was faithful of Israel. So all of these four points help show that God has not been unjust. God has been faithful to Israel. 
But then you get to chapter 10, and he makes, I think, one more really powerful point about how Israel and, and, uh, and the Gentiles, how they are actually have the same opportunities in the Lord to come to him. In fact, Israel even more so. Uh, because through the gospel, the offer to be God's people is for everybody. Uh, if you look at Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10 verses, uh, we'll start in verse 9, but notice what he says. He says, for if you confess with the mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is true whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. All right, God has opened up, God has not excluded any group. He didn't exclude Gentiles. He didn't exclude Jews. Through the gospel, he actually has opened up the door so that all can become Israelites, so that all can become part of his covenant family through their allegiance to the lordship of Jesus. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him, will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction, verse 12, notice, between Jew and Greek. So remember, this whole thing is about Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. And he's saying that the, the purpose of God, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is equalizing what the offer is to Jew and Gentile alike. So has God been unjust? No. No, God has not been, un God has been very faithful. Has God rejected his people? That's how chapter 11 begins. Notice, notice chapter 11 and verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is evidence that, that yes, Jews absolutely still have the opportunity to, for salvation through the message of Jesus. And so has God rejected his people? No, Paul's one of his people, and Paul's a Christian. Paul has, is part of the new covenant. Uh, so all of this is a pretty lengthy way of demonstrating that, yes, things do look different now. Things have changed. You might be in a church setting where most of the people are Gentiles. By the way, that's us. Uh, but where most of the people are Gentiles, and there might be a smaller number of Jews. Does that mean that God has refused or rejected the Jewish people? No, no. What it means is through opening up the door of the gospel to the whole world, some people have been more willing to take hold of it and enter through, and some people have rejected it. So you could stop there and think, okay, so the Gentiles were just more willing to accept the gospel, and so God's just going to honor them with salvation, right? Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says, and even this, though it's unpredictable, though it's not what you would expect, though it's difficult to determine exactly how everything's going to work out, even this is happening so that the Jews will become more faithful. What does that mean? Well, Paul considers himself the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He spends a lot of his time working with the Gentiles, trying to bring about their faith and obedience of, to Jesus. That, that's all through Romans, right? One of the reasons he's doing that is that he's hoping, and this is what he says he believes God's plan is, that though the Jews have largely rejected the Messiah, when they see so many Gentiles entering into the covenant family, 
that will then provoke them to jealousy so that they will then enter into the covenant family. And so through these unpredictable means, God is opening the door and saving Gentiles in order to save Jews. So like he offered it to the Jews first, then to the Greeks. So the Jews had the first chance. And when they rejected it, it went to the Gentiles. But after the Gentiles accepted it, then the Jews said, well, I want to accept it. And so, then, and so that ends up leading to the salvation of all people. So like even this hardening and this rejection that you're seeing, is for the purpose of bringing out about salvation to as many people as possible. And it's kind of a winding road to get you there, but through Romans 11, that's the point Paul's making. Uh, if you look at, for example, Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, he, he, he specifically right here zeroes in on the Gentiles in his message. He t- says, all right, Gentiles, I'm talking to you now. He says, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So he is doing this not just because he loves the Gentiles, but because he's hoping that his fellow countrymen will enter into it as well. He uses an illustration of like an olive tree. And you have God uh, growing this olive tree, and it's God's tree, but it's it's an Israelite tree. The, The branches on it are Israelites. But through the Messiah, those branches that were on the tree who rejected the Messiah, those branches got taken away. And he noticed that there were wild olive trees all around that were growing branches that were faithful to the Messiah. And so he took those and he grafted them on to his olive tree. So now this olive tree has like these wild branches on it, but they're all growing together. And the reason those wild branches were able to fit was because those first branches got removed. But here's what God can do. Because it has the wild branches on there, once the the original branches are provoked to jealousy, they will want to be added onto as well. And so then he can have an olive tree with like all of the branches on it. Jewish branches, Gentile branches, all branches on God's tree. And so Paul is, is winding together this point to say that God has not been unfaithful to his people. And even though it looks right now like a lot of the Jews are not in the covenant family that God wanted them to be, he is still working through history and through evangelism and through unexpected ways to bring about their salvation as well so that there will be a day when the fullness of the Gentiles come in and with the Gentiles, along with the faithful Israelites, all true Israel will be saved. The whole family will come because God wants the salvation of all. That's my best attempt at summarizing quickly Romans 9 through 11. Having said all of that, that's not really an issue that we grapple with daily, probably. You probably don't wake up feeling the same intense sorrow and pain in your heart that Paul is feeling uh, when it comes to viewing uh, Israel or Gentiles and how they all work together. We have moved on to other problems. Uh, But I still think as we look at these passages, we can find ways in which they relate to what our concerns are as well, and some points that I think are are important for us to remember. Uh, I want to close by looking at three uh, lessons that could be remembered from these chapters and from the points Paul is making. The first one is, and this is just a little little theological point that I hope hope you'll take with you. There are some who use these passages to uh, suggest that before the world began, God chose that there would be some people, some individuals who would be saved and go to heaven, and some individuals who would be condemned and go to hell, 
and that there's no uh, free will in that. This is, this is just, it's the, the divine sovereignty of God has made this election, and you either will or you won't. You're either chosen or you're not, and that's the end of the story. Um, and it's, kind of, it's actually a prominent idea in, in some circles, not, not historically within Christianity and not globally, but in some circles it, it, it is pretty prominent. Um, that is not what this passage is teaching. I mean, I hope you can see the Jew-Gentile distinct, like, topic throughout this whole thing. He's talking about groups of people. And by the time you get to the end of his argument, you come to find out that if there's any sort of, it's called double predestination, is the idea that God has chosen some to go to hell and some to go to heaven and they have no say in the matter. If there's any sort of double predestination in this passage, this is, this is I like the way Michael Gorman words this. Um, the double predestination is predestination for Jews and Gentiles, and it's that both would receive mercy. Like, that's the whole point of these three chapters. It's not that one, you know, individual will wake up eternally doomed and totally depraved, and there's nothing they can do, and they're just going to go to hell because God chose that. Glory to God. And another person is chosen, and they're automatically going to be saved. Glory to God. That's not that's not even close to what these passages are getting at. I, I can see how if you look at one verse here or there, you can, you can see some of those things, but that's not what they're doing. If you read the whole argument, what he's doing is showing that though the ways of God are unsearchable and unpredictable, he is choosing a means of salvation that will bring as many Gentiles and Jews as possible into his family because he loves them both. And that, that's, I think, a really important point here. And for me, it reminds me, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, male and female, slave or free, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you are black or whether you're white, whether you are an American citizen or a citizen of any other nation in the world, God has room for you and his family, and God loves you very much. And you have the option, you have the choice of hearing the gospel of God because the gospel is for all. The gospel is for all. So point number one that I want us to remember is that God is working to bring about the salvation as many of, as possible, Jew and Gentile, and of every other group you could possibly find a way to, to divide it up. God wants them to be saved because, as we discussed at the end of chapter 8, the love of God is overwhelming and makes us more than conquerors, and nothing on this earth can defeat it. And God's love is still seen in his election of each people group. All right. Secondly, the point that I hope that we'll see is that through this whole process, there is absolutely no room for boasting. One of the problems that Paul has to deal with is that the Gentiles, by being grafted on in place of the Jews, started to get a little bit arrogant about it. Uh, you'll, you'll, that becomes one of his key words, like chapter 11 and verse 18. He tells the Gentiles, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Like, don't become arrogant towards outsiders, thinking that you are better than them. It is by the grace of God that you have been grafted onto this tree. It is by the grace of God that you are a part of God's family. Be thankful, not arrogant. Be, be worshipful and rejoice rather than boast and rather than be conceited. Verse 20 of chapter 11, he says, Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited. But fear, for if God did not spare the nat natural branches, he will not spare you either. So his point is, if God can remove those first branches and put you on, if you start acting conceited and arrogant and proud and boastful, he can remove you and put the other branches back on too. Like, like so, so fear rather than be arrogant uh, and be thankful for the righteousness of God. 
Boasting has no place in God's kingdom. But then number three, and this is a point I made reference to it earlier, but you come get it from chapter 10. The point is that the gospel is actually for everyone. The gospel is for all, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, whether you are a Christian or whether you are not a Christian. And if there's anyone here in this morning who's not a Christian, God loves you, God has room for you in his family, he has a plan for you, and he's offered the gospel to you. And you can give your life and adherence to Jesus as your Lord right now here today. You can have your sins washed away in baptism so that you can be freed from the shackles of sin to become who God has called you to be. And if we can help you do that, uh, you can talk to one of our elders in, in the library. You can come sit on the front row. But please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.